Hey folks, a quick tip before we get into the show. If you enjoyed the recent episode with Felipe Turan talking about the use of TEE in the ICU, we have actually a group discount for you you could use to attend the Resus TEE course that Felipe runs. They tour around and do this workshop in different areas. I attended, Brian's attending soon. Really a great one-day course with a ton of hands-on experience. And Felipe agreed to offer you guys 20% for listeners of the show. This is going to be good for the next several classes up until the New York City courses on July 22nd and 23rd. Just enter the code CCSPOD, C-C-S-P-O-D 20, when you go to check out and you'll get your 20%. Uh, don't circulate that code around. It's really just for you guys, but we encourage you to give it a try. Now, time for the show. Hey everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Brian Bowling with you here, and as always, joining me is Brandon Odo. Hello. We have a, a very special guest with us today. Uh, somebody who no doubt you are familiar with from his podcast, his social media, his blogs, etc. Eddie Joe Gutierrez, welcome uh, to the podcast. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here with you and a uh, privilege, to be honest with you. You guys have done great work yourselves. Oh, thanks. Glad to have you. Uh, Brandon's got a case, I think, for us that we're going to talk about a little bit of ICU triage today. Now, Eddie is, uh, of course, an uh, intensivist to the stars via internal medicine, and we're going to get into some just true kind of fundamental intensivist type stuff today. So let me ask you, Eddie, are you, do you work in a, a teaching hospital? You work with residents? No, I, I do not work with residents. I work in a private practice hospital, community hospital. All right. So it is just you. And you get a call from your emergency department, and they're telling you, listen, um, we have this 70-year-old female down here, and uh, she's got some medical history. She's known to have uh, some uh, HEFREF. Last EF was, last year was about 45%, sort of reasonably controlled. She has some uh, chronic kidney disease, about stage 3, hypertension. She has coronary artery disease. She's had a couple stents in the past. Reasonably functional. Normally, she lives at home with her husband, but she's had a few days of a kind of insidious onset of dyspnea with exertion. Some fatigue going along with that, um, but kind of a subtle thing until today when her husband saw her go to the toilet, didn't see her for a little bit, and then he found her in there on the toilet, kind of panting and unable to even get up and walk back because of shortness of breath and just kind of weakness. So he called an ambulance. Ambulance brought her to your emergency department, and in triage there, her oxygen saturation was about 84% on room air. Her blood pressure was 100 over 45. The MAP was about 66. Her heart rate was 100, just sinus. She has no fever. They put her on a nasal cannula. They got some labs. Her white count's 19. Her creatinine is about at her baseline, which is 1.2. 
And they were concerned for a PE, so they did a CTA. And in fact, there are several segmental and lobar PEs in mainly the left lung. Also, however, there's some airspace disease, some, some consolidation and sort of interstitial changes that look like they may mean pneumonia. So the emergency doc says, you know, I, I don't kind of totally get the story here, I, I, but I think there is obviously PE and, and perhaps also an infectious pneumonia. I have her on the nasal cannula. She's at six liters and uh, she's satting about 90%. She doesn't look too bad clinically, but I'm not really sure. And the main question here is, should this patient come to the ICU? So you're sitting here with this phone in your hand. What are, what are the thoughts that you're thinking? Sure. The first thing I'm thinking about is, you know, what's this patient's likelihood of deteriorating? And um, I would say it's pretty high from two perspectives. Number one, what's interesting me not, is not necessarily the oxygen requirement, but more so the hypotension and tachycardia that this patient is seeing at this time. Because one has to differentiate, is this secondary to the infectious process going on in their lungs, or is this secondary to the PE that has been, even though it doesn't seem like the clot burden is um, too impressive, but it could be something that is causing her issues, say, if she has some under, underlying RV dysfunction at baseline that we're unaware of, you know, just a little bit of clot burden could go ahead and tip her off. Those things being said... I really like to err on the side of caution with patients uh, such as this one to where um, I would bring them to the intensive care unit more so to formulate a good plan of care as to what the next step is going to be. Because, for example, we're going to go ahead and attack all these issues simultaneously. So, for example, for this patient's underlying pneumonia, obviously they're going to get some, um, they're going to get some, antibiotics and they're also going to get some support from a respiratory standpoint in which case you know if they're on six liters as you mentioned I think they were on 90 90 percent sats I would like to optimize that with the utilization of nasal high flow to help decrease the work of breathing help recruit some of those alveoli and you know off, offload some of the respiratory burden in the patient now the next the next topic now that we went ahead and addressed their oxygenation requirement as well as their pneumonia from that standpoint, you know, one could make the argument of giving the sepsis guidelines given the Y count of the 30 cc's per kilogram of IV fluids. However, that might be detrimental to this patient if they do have some sort of RV dysfunction from this underlying PE. So in which case, uh, echocardiogram might be of use. Um, this depends on the type of institution where you work at, whether there's a PERT team available or a line of clinicians who help to establish what the next step in care for this patient's pulmonary embolism is. And this is another reason why it's important, at least in my eyes, even though this patient could hypothetically go to an IMC um, step-down unit, whatever their um, whatever the terminology is for your respective institution, which at the end of the day ends up being a bottleneck at most places because, <laughs> you know, that's just, that's just the way it is. Um, but if you are on the side of caution and transfer the patient to the intensive care unit, mobilizing these teams and these individuals will take place faster. You know, there are always the uh, limitations in staff with regards to who could go down and do the echocardiogram. If you can't do it yourself, you don't have the equipment necessary. 
but activating the PERT team so that the films could be looked at and echocardiogram could be performed in a faster manner um, and a determination as to whether some sort of intervention is going to need to take place on this potentially submassive pulmonary embolism, you know, th- those, those different things would incline me to place the patient in the intensive care unit more so than in a step-down type unit. So it sounds like a lot of what you're thinking about is not necessarily the patient's trajectory, but at this phase, almost still just the workup and kind of making decisions. And like, if you knew more about what you were going to do with these disease processes, um, it might say more about the disposition, but it's just kind of so unclear that maybe it would make sense to stick them in the ICU so you can do all those things and then figure it out later. Right. I mean, I think, I think our emergency medicine colleagues are, you know, burdened with extensive patient loads and workups and all that, that I try to give them the benefit of the doubt um, when these things are not complete prior to uh, calling me, for example, especially, you know, being that I am not an academic institution, I'm very hands-on, as many could tell by my podcast and my other content. Um, I like to do all this stuff myself (laughs) to, to a certain extent. So I am very possessive of my patients. I'm big on personal responsibility and ownership of the patients. So that might give me a different perspective than other clinicians to just go ahead, take them and, and assume care for, for these individuals. Can I interject a question real quick? So you, cause you mentioned a couple of things. One that, you know, this patient's sort of on the fence for, ICU versus a step down. And then two, you mentioned about the ED is busy, right? That you, so you said, I think, uh, you know, kind of forgive them for an incomplete workup because they're busy or whatever. So let me throw a wrench in this. What if you say, I'd like to admit this patient to the ICU and there aren't any ICU beds. Do you at that point say, all right, well, the PCU is fine because it gets them out of the ED or do you say, no, I, I would rather them board in the ED and wait for an ICU? Because I think neither of those are perfect solutions. But uh, sort of what tips your tips your scale one way or the other? Personally, I would board them in the ED and just walk down there. It's only four flights of stairs, and I have to close my rings on my Apple Watch every day. So that helps me achieve that objective <laughs> faster. <laughs> but, enough, but, jo- but jokes aside, it, it you know, if, um, and this depends on the, this depends on the, the, the facility is, you know, one has to take into account and, and this is full transparency, what, what different unit they're going to go to, depending on which IMC, the quality of nurses, the quality of respiratory therapy, how far they are away from you. Because for example, if, a, if one of the step down units is further away from you walking than the emergency department is, those are, those are some of the intangibles there that I, Way in when I decide where I want to where I want to take a patient. The other thing is that um, you know it all comes down to metrics at the end of the day, and basically utilizing a step down bed for let's say four hours, but then the decision is made to take the patient to interventional radiology or interventional cardiology so that they could have either um, either thrombolytics or a mechanical thrombectomy performed for that PE those patients are still going to end up in the ICU, right? So that's one of the reasons why I would err on the side of just taking them to the ICU and figuring it out or boarding them in the emergency department until an ICU bed is available. Right. Yeah, and I I think that in an absolutely ideal, like mathematically constructed world, it would make sense for all of this uh, workup to be done in the ER and then that would determine the patient's position. But 
that's so much easier said than done. You know, sometimes we'll get patients where once everything has been sorted out, we'll say, oh, this patient didn't need to come to the ICU. But when you really look back, that took you 12 hours to do or something. So is the patient going to sit in the ER for all that time? And, you know, all of our emergency department colleagues are saying, like, no way. You know, they're working on more like hourly timelines down there. An additional hour is a, a big backup for them. So even if it's, you know, one single lab that can determine where someone's going, you know, if that takes two hours, it's, it's a tricky decision. So you're right. I think a lot of people might need to come to us just until we figure out what's going on, granting that, you know, that is a use of a, an ICU bed. And I mean, realistically, oftentimes, you know, a day or a night in the ICU, will you take patients to the ICU like this for six hours and then send them elsewhere in the hospital? Or will you pretty much watch them overnight? Uh, at this point, I would, I would just watch them overnight. You know, this is, this is taking into account, um, I don't know how most facilities are, but we have a lot of freestanding ERs in the community. And um, in those cases, we, we depend on the, on the physical exam and, and what, the, what our colleagues in those, in those facilities explain to us is going on with the patient. So, you know, they'll tell you, oh, this patient looks good or they look kind of marginal or, you know, you got to kind of trust what, what they're telling you. And again, I always want to err on the side of caution in accepting the patient to the intensive care unit. Now, let's say, for example, I go and I lay eyes on the patient myself. Um, even though there's so much knowledge that we all have with regards to patient care, et cetera, the one thing a lot of us really trust is our eyeballs and how the patient looks. So that, can, that also is another component I didn't mention prior with regards to triage. Okay, so let's, let's break this down into these diseases. Um, let's look at the PEs. You mentioned an echo. So let's say that an echo does get done in the ED. Maybe the emergency department team does it. Maybe uh, an echo tech does it. And it shows that there is maybe mild RV strain. The RV is a little bit dilated, a little bit hypoactive. Tell me just in general, sort of on paper, which PEs do you think need to come to the ICU? In my opinion, the PEs that need to come to the ICU are those that most likely are going to require some sort of intervention. And by that, I mean, is it a patient who is going to need some sort of thrombectomy with these new devices that are now on the market or a patient who's going to need a catheter-directed TPA, for example? And I know that on both of these, the data is rather ambiguous and it's not robust and we could get into an academic conversation as to why that is or isn't so. But overall, um, you know, it, it eventually ends up being a judgment call. I know that people use certain like PESI scores and they use other clinical criteria. Um, and, you know, there's that there's that whole ambiguity of a CTEF, for example, and whether these PEs are going to cause CTEF on these individuals. But again, that's a that's a different conversation. But even more recently, there was an abstract that was that was um, discussed a couple I guess like a week or so ago, of patients who have um, submassive PEs, they floated a swan in these individuals, if I if I recall correctly, and they noticed that after performing the me mechanical thrombectomy, their cardiac index improved significantly, and their RV pressures, you know, their PA pressures, RV pressures improved dramatically. Um, and these these were patients who clinically um, would not be patients who we would think would need a thrombectomy. Um, they weren't patients who were crashing and burning. So there, there are those things that, that we still cannot define precisely, which 
makes enrolling patients into clinical trials for these things uh, a little bit on the challenging side. But overall, you know, that that's one of those things where you have to you have to put the patient first and, and see what the risk of complications from possible interventions is going to be. The other component that comes along with this and, you know, the, the numerous institutions where I've already practiced at and done moonlighting, et cetera, is that if a phone call for, and, and I hate to say this, but it's, it's reality. If the phone call for, let's say, catheter-directed uh, TPA or a thrombectomy or or anything comes from an intensivist is going to hold more weight than coming from a different person. So mobilizing, for example, the interventional radiology team is is quite simple for me because I've had a number of years to develop that relationship with them. And if they say, hey, Eddie, you think this person needs a, thrombect- uh, needs a catheter-directed TPA or a thrombectomy? They, they basically come and address that immediately. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and I, I think this is a good illustration of what we face very, very often, which is doing interventions or, you know, and you could say putting someone in the ICU as an intervention, but based not on the immediate need, you know, if somebody is frankly hypotensive and you put them on pressors, or, you know, that's sort of straightforward, but based on risk, you know, right. this patient might need something, they might get worse. And I, I mean, what, probably 95% of PEs we see in the ICU, that's the reason, right? It's not because they're, you know, floridly crashing. They're just, they might. Right, <laughs> right, right. that's kind right. of Absolutely. how RV failure is. So it, it's tricky. Um, what about the pneumonia? So, you know, this patient seems to have pneumonia. They are needing some oxygen. Maybe they need a, some additional support. You mentioned high flow. Again, just on paper, which pneumonia patients do you think need to come to the unit? I'll, I'll take the easiest one off. If they need to be intubated, sure. But what about sure. everyone else? Well, so this is where you can use, um, again, clinical judgment means a lot here as to the patients who could potentially deteriorate. But one thing that COVID has taught us is to allow people who are, to allow nursing staff as well as respiratory therapists who are either in the step-down units or even on the med surge floors to become more comfortable with the different technologies we now have available. Um, You know, I don't know how other institutions were able to cope with the pandemic, but we, for example, were able to use for a period of time using the high-flow nasal cannula devices in our med surge units. So that brought on, um, for better or worse, some familiarity to our med surgeon nurses to be able to say, hey, by the way, you know, um, not necessarily titrate the devices or anything like that, but at least be comfortable with the device being on their patient and how it works and whatnot. So I allow here a little bit of wiggle room for for determining whether a patient needs to be in the step-down unit of sorts or the ICU. And usually um, I have a I guess I could say it's a clinical type of determination that if they're on over 50 liters of flow, they definitely need to be in the intensive care unit because their risk of deteriorating is pretty high. Um, But one could go ahead and utilize the ROCS index, for example, to determine what the patient's likelihood of intubation is going to be. And, um, you know, that's that's just one of the the things that we could do to predict whether a patient's going to fly or not on the nasal high flow. If they are, if they have pneumonia and they need non-invasive ventilation, being either BiPAP or CPAP, uh, yeah, those patients are not going to go to a step-down unit. Those patients are most likely going to end up intubated for a number of reasons, but that's a different conversation. Now, I think this raises an interesting point, which is, you know, we're talking about the possibility that the patient may get worse, 
so they need more intervention to be innovated or whatever. I think one could ask, does the fact that a patient may need, or let's even say that they will need, let's say you can magically say that this patient in 12 hours, no, no sooner, no later, will need to be innovated. Does that mean they need to be in the ICU until then? In other words, does the mere fact that a patient is going to get worse later mean they have to kind of wait in the ICU in the meantime? Or can a patient be watched and even get worse in other settings as long as they don't get worse precipitously? In other words, as long as somebody can recognize, oh, they're getting worse, now they should go to the ICU. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, the, but, you know, so here's what happens. If you say 12 hours, that's going to hit your partner. And let's say you admit the person at nine o'clock in the morning and then they deteriorate at nine o'clock at night, hypothetically speaking, you're basically dumping on your partner or you're dumping on the, the nurse practitioner or PA, depending on how your institution or resident for that matter, or fellow who's going to be on nights. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of hard, especially if the patient, first of all, it's hard to predict if they're going to crash in 12 hours or not, but let's say they do crash. Are you going to be able to safely secure an airway in a different place that's not the intensive care unit. So that, that's, that's one, of the, one of the factors. Um, for example, my institution, we have the, the step-down unit is pretty much directly connected by, by a series of offices and waiting rooms and whatnot from our step-down unit. So I will place certain patients who I do think are going to potentially deteriorate. I will at times place them in that unit um, simply because I could get to them at the equal amount of time and then I could have my crew move from the ICU to the step-down unit rather easily. The rooms are the same size, the layout's the same, et cetera, so it's not a big deal. But for those people who don't have a setup similar to the one I have, I mean, it makes it kind of difficult to say, hey, you know, go, go house them somewhere else outside the ICU for a period of time and then just wait for, wait for things to get worse. Because... The, the other thing that, that we have to take into consideration is the fact that the sepsis guidelines state that we need to give these well, they now they now suggest as opposed to recommend, but we'll see how long CMS takes to act on that new recommendation. But these patients get to the, get to the ED, you know, they have pneumonia, they are a little bit hypotensive, you know, they have an elevated lactate. And so the, the button basically gets clicked to give these patients 30 cc's per kilogram. Um, there are two trials that are, you know, in the process of being completed right now, which are looking at not giving the patients 30 cc's per kilogram. I think uh, this summer, the classic trial is one of them that's going to be published. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I think Clover's is the other one. But, um, but the reason why I bring this up is because a lot of these patients, when you, they already have an insult to their lungs. Um, and so you're going to go ahead and add several liters of fluid to them. And we know a lot of these folks are unfortunately going to third space because they already have capillary leak and, and endothelial dysfunction, et cetera. And so it might make their, worst, their respiratory status worse before it makes it better. So, you know, by the time that they give the fluids and let's say they go up to the ICU and then and that's the ICU, excuse me, to the step down and somebody's going to place them on maintenance fluids, which we can have a very animated debate as to whether that's needed or not. But you know, you're kind of setting yourself up for potential failure and not, not yourself, but the patient who's the one who's going to suffer from all this. So those are the reasons why to, especially to have complete control over the management of these patients, I would err on the side of 
um, if, their, if their risk is sufficiently high, I would err on the side of just going ahead and, and moving them to the ICU. Yeah, and do you find that for some of these patients, the where you put them can if, end up affecting their care? For instance, you have this septic patient who's borderline hypotensive and you put them outside the ICU, they may end up getting more fluid because people are trying to support their blood pressure without giving them pressors, which would mean sending them to the ICU. Or, you know, maybe a patient who is in respiratory failure and you're trying to avoid intubating them. And I think we saw a lot of this during COVID, which would mean sending them to the ICU and it's a whole production. So you kind of drag out non-invasive support and other things longer than you might if they were just already in the ICU. So, and, and I completely understand that. And, and yeah, there, there are these, there are these nuances depending on where a patient is. And honestly, not everybody practices medicine the same way. Some, some clinicians are a little bit more happy with giving fluids and some, some are more reluctant to actually call the ICU for a consult or for a transfer. However, I think the best way to mitigate this is to have an open communication line with your consultants with your hospitalists, anybody who's taking care of these patients out in the rest of the hospital as to where, if there are any issues, hey, an, an ICU consult is is welcome, um, simply because it's going to afford the best care for, for the patients. So in my institution, everybody has my cell phone number, everybody has, um, you know, we have the secure messaging similar to many institutions out there. And if there's a question, the, the door's open. I'm never going to be mean to anybody. I'm never going to give anybody a hard time, especially when they're doing their best to advocate for the patient. So, you know, it, we've also tried to mitigate to a certain, to a certain extent um, the, the variation in practice patterns by just addressing everything on an evidence-based manner. So there's there's been a significant uh, decrease in the utilization of maintenance fluids and uh, better use of uh, balanced salt solutions as opposed to saline, et cetera, et cetera. All the stuff we've talked about is great. And, you know, overall, I think it's easy to say that, you know, we would sort of err on the side of ICU admission if there's any question, especially early in the patient's course. However, I have to ask, does any of this change if your ICU is full? So say you're planning to take this patient and then you're your nurse manager comes and says, listen, dude, we are full to the gills. Our, you know, 20 bed unit has 20 people in it. And then there are four more patients who are already boarding in the ER or wherever. Does this patient really need to come here? Really? <laughs> so does that factor at all into your decision-making process? It, it, it definitely does. But the, the difference is that we might not have a bed, to place the patient in, but I'm still going to attempt my best to provide the patient with the same level of care. I'll still, I'll still treat them of sorts as they're an ICU patient. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's really hard to keep people out of the ICU when they really need it, right? Like, so let's say, for example, uh, a patient is hypotensive. Let's say that this, this patient that we were discussing, yeah, her MAP was like about 64 or so. And let's say she didn't have a PE or she didn't have any of this uh, any of these issues with her with her heart, but you go ahead and you provide her with the IV fluid boluses, but she's still hypotensive. I mean, insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. This patient needs vasopressors. So at least in my opinion, I mean, you could try to hit a lower map, map goal or whatever, but, but what's going to happen is that let's say you go ahead and you put them in a step down unit to 
unload the ICU, for example, but you put them in a step-down unit and the first time that they, they check a blood pressure and their MAP is 55, for example, they're going to be blowing up your phone saying like, hey, this patient's hypotensive, they need the ICU. And then it becomes more of a, more of a headache. Um, I, I personally, I, I have to put myself in the, in the shoes of my patients and their families and, and do my best to advocate for them. I understand that there are limitations and resources, but it's, it's just part of, um, part of practicing medicine and just figuring it out in these settings where we have limited resources. Thankfully we have, I mean, I can't think of the number off the top of my head, but you know, we have close to 60 ICU beds at my facility that, that we could use. So, um, us being full on a, on a regular day is not something that happens. Uh, it doesn't happen often, thankfully. Sure. And full, especially at larger institutions, can have fl- kind of a flexible definition. Maybe you can shuffle people between units or, you know, find some other patient who you can move out. Of course, that raises the question of why they were in the ICU, but never mind that. Okay. So you bring this patient to the ICU. Uh, they are anticoagulated. Nobody wants to make any more aggressive interventions. Uh, you put them on a high flow nasal cannula, they get some antibiotics. The next day rolls around. It's been about 24 hours. At this point, they are, let's say they're on the same level of oxygen, which is not a tremendous amount, but um, I don't know. Let's say they're on 40, 50% FiO2, and I don't know, 20, 30 liters by high flow. Um, Their blood pressure is about the same, which is to say sort of on the soft side for everyone who loves that word, Um, but they haven't needed any pressors or anything. And clinically, they'll go about the same. Would you consider transferring this patient out of the ICU now? I I would definitely consider it at this point. So the, and I have to ask then, because essentially this is the same patient you just evaluated 24 hours ago and brought to the ICU. So does that imply that your criteria for sending someone out is a little different from your criteria for accepting them in the first place? Well, usually if they're going to, going to deteriorate, it's going to be a little bit sooner in the, in the hospital course, um, at, least, uh, at least in my experience. And, you know, there are a ton of variables that, that go along with this. But if um, her oxygen requirement hasn't increased from the day prior, uh, her high flow settings from what you described aren't exorbitant. That's a, that's a patient who could easily be cared for in our step down units. So, and if that's her blood pressure and that's kind of where she lives, then, then that's kind of where she lives. If she has a good capillary refill, lactate didn't go up any further, and she overall looks okay, that's somebody who I would, and we do need beds, right? Then I would go ahead and transfer the patient out of the ICU. I would sure. keep on following them though, just because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm obsessive about those things. I need to make sure my yeah. patients are doing fine. Sure, you'll creep the chart. So what you're saying is the difference between these two patients is, is time. You've been able to watch them for a period of time and they've maybe not proven, but at least increased the chance that their trajectory is, is fairly flat. You know, if they were going to get worse, I mean, they could still get worse, but it's a lot less likely than it was 24 hours ago when they'd only been watched in medical care for like an hour and, you know, not in the ICU at all. Correct. Yeah. I, I, I think this kind of this tale gets at a lot of these, these tricky triage decisions, you know, on on the one hand showing that there's not really a hard line for a lot of these patients. It's almost the easy ones where they 
clearly requires something that you have to do in the ICU. They're on the vent, they're on pressors, whatever, sure. But so often it's just about risk, which really is about judgment. And and really, I mean, it requires a knowledge of a lot of diseases and, and their, their risk for deteriorating and how quickly they would do that and when that would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the, the role of time, because so often what answers those questions is being able to watch people for some amount of time. And then the importance of that and then how long to do it, again, comes down to sort of judgment and, and what the diseases are. Right. No, ab- absolutely. I mean, you know, case in point, uh, the last the last week that I was on service, I got a phone call from one of my one of my hospital medicine colleagues. And I'm very blessed that I get to work with a lot of excellent physicians in that department. Um, you know, she reached out to me and, and one of the things I do is ask people for their med- medical record number and I quickly take a glance at everybody's chart. And, um, you know, the vitals look good. The, the patient's uh, ABG looked a little bit hypercapnic, but not, not a big deal. And, uh, you know, she responded on and she's like, oh, Eddie, there's, there's just, I can't, I can't put my finger on it and this patient just doesn't look well. And uh, without getting too much into the detail of the, of the patient, um, I, I immediately brought the patient to the intensive care unit because the, she was absolutely correct. There was nothing, there was nothing that was screaming at her in the chart, but there was something that was wrong with the patient. She just didn't know what it was at that moment. And we eventually pieced it together, but the, the patient needed ICU despite normal, um, <laughs> pretty much a normal blood gas and uh, normal labs and normal vitals. So, you know, there, there are those components to it versus some other people, if, you know, some other people might not have brought that patient to the intensive care unit or even gone to lay eyes on the patient just because everything looked good on, on the piece of paper. Right. And that's sort of why we're here. I mean, any idiot or computer algorithm could take the patient who's already sick to the ICU, but to look at someone and say, you know, they sort of look okay, but I know that their, their TBI may, you know, develop worse edema in the next couple of days, or this PE patient can suddenly decompensate, or, you know, this hyponatremic might, you know, suddenly start diuresing and their sodium shoots up or something. And there's a right place and a wrong place to do those things. Brian, what do you think about all this? Well, I think that's a, I was gonna say, I think that's a important point too. what you were saying about your, you know, your colleagues is I just don't know. I don't know. Something's not right here. Right. I think there's a lot to be said about respecting uh, someone's sort of gut feeling that, you know, I don't know enough to know what's going on, but I don't feel good about this. You know, and the flip side too is I, I get calls a lot of times from the interns on the floor who say, "Can you come look at this patient?" And you go look at them and you go, "I mean, they don't look great, but they don't look super sick. I don't know that they need to come to the ICU, but but clearly the intern who's who's by himself on the floor feels uncomfortable. He's nervous and stuff. And so I think there's sometimes benefit in saying, "You know what? Yeah, I'll I'll take this guy to the ICU, even though I might not feel like he really needs to go." You cl- you clearly seem uncomfortable with the situation, uh, and th- and I feel like that's better than, you know, in a couple of hours getting a call that a patient's coding on the floor because there was something that sure enough we just sort of missed right, um, and and somebody was in a situation that wasn't comfortable managing it. Well, it's a judgment, but also about you know logistics, right? Yeah. I mean, it, you're saying that medically maybe this patient doesn't need the ICU, but they're saying that practically the floor is not able to manage them, right. and they understand that milieu better than you. You know, they understand the resources and stuff there, so it's like you know they they may not have to come to the ICU, but they can't stay here, right? And that means they have to come to the ICU, right? Exactly, because there's this sort of gray area sometimes I think right between the floor and the ICU, and and even between the step down and the ICU. Um, 
where it's not so cut and dried. And like you said, it, it usually means that they're going to have to come to the ICU. Right. And th- that's where, that's where you, this is where experience with your institution, no matter where it is, come, comes to play because you get to know the bedside nurses very well. You get to know their strengths and their limitations. Same thing with your respiratory therapists who are working on that floor, how comfortable they are. And, you know, for example, when, when they do call you, because the vast majority of the respiratory therapists at my facility have my cell phone number. And when I see my phone ring and I know it's the respiratory therapist who's on that floor, I know I need to move. I don't even need to really need to pick up the phone for them. I just need to show up at the bedside because something bad's happening and I need to escalate the care of this patient. That's, that's one of the, one of the good things about working um, in a community hospital like the one I do, even though it's, you know, approximately 500 beds, it's not small by any means, but we, we, we get right to the source on everything, you know, like picking up the phone when you need a consultant, you just call them directly, things like that, as opposed to many academic institutions, you know, you have to go through the intern resident fellow attending hierarchy that, that could take up, take up a lot of time, but that's a different conversation. Well, I think that, uh, like, like you're saying, communication is what kind of solves that problem. Cause if you think that these decisions have to be final decisions, then we're going to get them wrong a lot of the time. But if they're an ongoing process and people can talk to each other and work out what works for the patient, then you're more likely to, to figure it out. And ultimately the reason that it's hard is because we all want to err on the side of safety, but you can only err so far. I mean, we are in systems with limited resources and, you know, anyone who's looking at it from a very top level view will prioritize safety, but also recognize that there, there's no free lunch. You know, if you take everyone to the ICU, it's not better for everyone. <laughs> they all end up, you know, boarding in the ER or something, which is also bad for them. You know, there's, there's data on that. The longer you sit around outside the ICU when you're, quote, an ICU patient, you, you don't get the same care. And, you know, if you're, if you're nurses and your therapists and your teams are all, you know, slammed with patients, they're not able to do the same for each of them. So that's why it's hard. I mean, it would be easy if we could just sort of up triage everyone, but. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's, that's a very valid point. I mean, I know that when we all had our respective surges of COVID, that, that was, that was what ate up 75% of our bandwidth. (laughs) At least I feel is figuring out who needs to be escalated, who could be downgraded, you know, especially when, you had a patient uh, who was on max high flow and they had been stable for about X amount of days, for example. And uh, you have a patient who needs to be intubated and you end up downgrading somebody who's on max high flow on 60 liters, 100 percent. So <laughs> that was that was some of the tricky stuff that that's not dis- described in any of the literature. But at the end of the day, all of us did it at our, at our respective institutions. Well, it goes to show that the where you set that that needle for your triage thresholds is is not set in stone. It depends on your systems, right? I mean, in I think in the United States, um, we have a a pretty low you know acceptance of of risk by culture, probably both for just kind of the lives we like to live, and we like to think that there's a low risk of bad things happening to any one of us on any day, and probably for legal reasons and so on. Legal reasons. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think that's what people point to, but you don't necessarily sit around thinking about getting sued every minute of every day. It's just the way that you trained and are used to practicing is, you know, in part influenced by that and by sort of, you know, you we have a, a low acceptance of saying this patient had a potentially preventable problem. So we try to avoid that. But in a system with fewer resources, like we saw during COVID, you are forced 
to move that needle and accept a little more risk because the alternative is, you know, globally more risk. And if you go into really resource limited settings, like some other countries or you're you know, you're running a quote ICU out of a, a tent or something, then obviously your standard of care is going to be different because to provide the most for the most people, you can't be as paranoid for each one of them. Absolutely. And, I, and I've practiced in another country, so I could completely attest to that. Yeah. And you know, when you said legal reasons, and we may not think of it in those terms all the time, I do think there's some value in that, right? I used to have an attending who would always say, can you defend that decision, right? If you're called in front of a court of law, and they say, why did you do this? Can you defend yourself? And he said, if you can, then great, you're fine. But if you can't, then you're in trouble. And that helped me sort of clarify a lot of my decisions that I was making based on, well, I mean, is this really the right decision to make? You know, and and you can say, well, this is a risk and the patient could have a poor outcome. But at the end of the day, I mean, I can justify it. I can say that we're doing the right thing. And could something bad still happen? Yes, but I'm doing the right thing. And by the same token, right, if you're, si- if you're sitting there, he also used to say, if you're asking, if you're trying to find a way to justify not doing something, you should just do it. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if you're sitting there going, should I send the patient to CT? Uh, and you're trying to come up with a good reason not to, is it you're, you're trying to talk yourself out of something that your gut tells you is the right thing, so... Yeah. And I think that's why it's nice to have uh, sometimes things outside of us, guidelines, policies, protocols in your institution or your societies or whatever. So you can point at those to help you make the hard decisions because otherwise you will always be influenced in the lowest hanging fruit, which is usually um, doing more. You know, I think this patient doesn't necessarily need the ICU or whatever, but I'm worried about someone asking, hey, why didn't you do everything for them? And you could say, well, our policy is with these criteria or whatever. Yeah, well, have you gentlemen ever sat on any committees where you come up with policy? Uh, Yes. (laughs) So you know how much fun that is. Yeah, I I think that it's not necessarily that when you put all your brains together, you get better decisions, but it's a diffusion of responsibility. You know, it's not down to one person at 3 a.m., they're saying, well, the other 10 jokers who sat around in a committee and made this decision, it's sort of on them too. <laughs> well, I think into, yeah, I mean, there's committee issues aside. I think there is some value in that. It's sort of like, you know, when I talk to patients, when if they first get admitted to the ICU, talk to them and their family and say, you know, hey, everything is going okay right now. But if you get to the point where your heart stops, do you want CPR? Do you want a breathing tube? And they say no, right? That's the time to make that decision in the cool light of day not at three o'clock in the morning when it's all hitting the fan and you're faced with an emergency and you're having to make an emergency decision. You know, you've already thought this through. This is the, a logical, rational conclusion that you've reached. And I think sometimes, you know, you, we can logical and rational sometimes don't go together with committees, but um, you know, having that, we're going to sit down and think of this out in a very non-emotional way where I don't have a patient who's dying in front of me, potentially what should, what's the best thing to do. Uh, does sort of help. All right. What are our final thoughts on this? Eddie, what, what do you think we should take away from this? What are we getting wrong or could do better with our triage? Well, I think one of the things that we get wrong is thinking that we might have a solution to this issue. When in reality, <laughs> there are so many variables that come into play that cannot necessarily be quantified. Um, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just hard. Right. Um, you know, like I've, I've practiced at institutions where they have a certain pH for which they take DKAs, for example. Um, and I'm not going to disclose what that threshold was, but 
sometimes you have DKA patients who are above that threshold and they are far sicker than somebody who has a PHS lower. And so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of variables that, that go into every patient and every situation. It's not all homogenous and easy. So it, it just, it just leaves it up to the, it leaves it up to the discretion of those who are doing the admitting as to where, where they should go. And, and having the, the, thought process to work through the possible complications that the patient might um, might encounter because you need to have an exit strategy. You need to have the proper people on board, the proper team on board, the, the proper access to different therapeutics, uh, different oxygen devices, and th- those things need to be planned for ahead of time. And it's, it might sound like a lot to somebody who's uninitiated, somebody who does not have a lot of experience, but it does come with time as to where all, all these thought processes that we, the three of us have illustrated during the course of this conversation, this takes place in our head within a mere matter of seconds where we could think through the whole clinical course of this patient and try to figure out what are the pitfalls and where, where things could go south and, you know, make your determination on where to house them from there. Um, if I was, for example, the same patient that we were kind of on the fence of, of whether to put them in the intensive care unit or, or a step-down unit, which either argument could have been okay from the get-go. But if I could have assured myself that I could have this patient within a couple steps from my normal ICU, as opposed to one of the further step-down units, for example, I would be more willing to actually house them in, in our PCU and then follow them from there. But if you're going to tell me, hey, no, they're going to be in one of the one of the step down units that's all the way on the other side of the hospital, then I'm going to say no. Then this patient needs the ICU. So those are those are the little intangibles that that cannot be quantified necessarily at any other institution outside of my own. Yeah, each person's different, each patient, each institution. And I guess the other thing I'd warn is that there's no other decision which is so prone to. Um, you know, a, a bias of second guessing here. If if you look at someone's decision on their, their patient disposition or triage and say they got it wrong, try doing it prospectively. You know, if you think you're that much smarter than them, follow them to the next patient and put your chips down on how the patient's going to do. Because it is, it is not easy. And if you're doing a, a lot of saying, gosh, this patient didn't need to come here. Gosh, this patient should have come here. Um, it, I think it's probably not as easy <laughs> as you think it is. Uh, and hindsight's twenty twenty, as the saying goes. It's it, it would be it would be unfair to play Monday Monday morning quarterback with all these triage questions. When again, as I mentioned earlier, there's just so many variables to to each patient. You know, for example, this patient who we discussed that I would have admitted to the ICU if somebody would have said, "Hey, they could have been in step down the whole time. Why did you use an ICU bed for them?" Uh, I would I would have a couple of choice words for them. <laughs> Yeah, we didn't know that at the time. As we've said, you know, observation is, you know, the biggest tool here and you don't have that until you observe them, so. Right, right. So I, I try not to, even even the same thing, you know, as we do handoffs with my partners and all that, you know, we, we all get kind of embarrassed when we admit somebody who ends up being, we, we take a call from an outside hospital or whatnot and we admit somebody to the ICU. And uh, the first thing when the next person comes in, is like, oh, you could downgrade them. Like, let's say, for example, I admit somebody on night shift, they get to my shop. I look at them, they look fantastic. I basically got sold a different bill of goods. And I say, okay, well, just round on them in the morning, make sure they're okay, and just downgrade them. You know, that that that's not necessarily the 
nicest thing to do, but, but at the same time, it's sometimes what's best for the patient. All right, Eddie. Well, I'm so glad we were able to talk about this. Uh, for those listening, if you, this is your cup of tea, please check out Eddie's podcast or the rest of his, uh, social media empire. We'll throw in links to his Instagram and so on, on the, uh, the show notes here. Um, other than that, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Just remember, this show is not meant to advise you medically. It's just sort of general educational content. Uh, and everything you've heard here is just our views and not those of any of our affiliated institutions. Oh,